Welcome to Meet Me at the Movies, Noel T. Manning II here, uh, spending time with you from the uh, studio, C19 TV. Uh, I am incredibly happy to have as our guest today, uh, Lawrence Topman. I've been trying to get you on the show for about 22 years, and uh, it's finally happened. Uh, you, and I, you and I talked back during the pandemic, and you said, you know, I won't do Zoom, right. but when the pandemic is finished and you can have people back in the studio, I'd love to come back. And thank you for being here. Really appreciate you having you. No, it's a pleasure. So uh, you were a, a film critic for the uh, Charlotte Observer for right. 30 years, is that right? 87 to 2017, right? So I'm not good at math, but I think that's about 30, 30 that years is. or so. You also did other uh, areas of arts and entertainment coverage as well. But today we'll focus on film and your love of film and, and, and where that came from and, and how that got started. Well, it really came from college when I thought I was going to be a professional actor. And the head of the Duke University theater program kindly explained to me that my talent level was not sufficient <laughs> and told me, you love the arts, you should write about them. That's your contribution, don't act. <laughs> and uh, I took this to heart. Luckily, I was smart enough in my 20s to figure this out. And I've always wanted to write about the arts. And when Atlantic City, the movie was shot in 1979 in Atlantic City, I was working for the paper there doing some writing about film and I spent four weeks on the set. Oh, wow. I interviewed everybody about what they did, yeah. how the process worked, and the more I learned about film and the more I understood how you make film, yeah. the more exciting and interesting it got. And I thought, okay, I'm still not an actor, even though I'm an extra in that movie, <laughs> but I really want to write about this for a living. And I had been a sports writer at that point. That was my main job. Right. And re reviewing movies on the side. And I decided to get a job where I could write about culture full time. And the Charlotte News, the afternoon paper in Charlotte, now defunct, gave me that job. And then after a while, the News and the Observer merged, the News died, and I ended up as the Observer's movie critic. Wow, wow. So, so thinking back to those first reviews that you got a chance to write, uh, we've talked about this uh, off the air, and uh, one of those happened in the 70s. Uh, yes. A, a little sci-fi film that, that hit theaters uh, and, and was a moderate success. Uh, yes, and I predicted that it would run for a couple of weekends and urged people to go see it as quickly as possible because Star Wars was a really interesting film that would probably be gone. It was May when it opened. I thought, maybe it'll be here Independence Day, probably not. And I made the mistake of saying that in a review. Never predict anything. That's the lesson to learn. Don't predict who's going to win anything. Don't predict what's going to make money. Don't predict what people are going to like. And all summer, people would come up to me because my picture ran in, in the paper with the review and say, ha, you wrote the Star Wars review. Ha, you're an idiot. And I would think, well, wait a minute. I'm not an idiot. I said it was really well made. The idiot part was the prediction. But they, they did finally acknowledge that I at least got that right. And I thought, wow, look at the influence this has on people. I'm not saying I made people go to Star Wars. Right. But look at how passionate they are about the thing I'm right. covering. And that made me want to be a movie critic eventually full time. And it took 10 years, and then I was. Well, and you talk about the passion aspect of it. And um, 
when you when you put yourself out there and you say I, I love this film or I hate this film or this actor was was pretty pitiful <laughs> and you and you tell your reasons why there's always someone on the other side of it much like politics or religion or, or any kind of art you, there's always someone else who feels differently and they want to tell you why they feel differently about it well and I would get letters that said boy you really didn't like this film and I read your review and I knew I would like it and I went and it was terrific and I would always write back and say well then I did my job yeah. my job is not to tell you to go or not go mm -hmm. it's to let you understand from what I experienced and what you've read about whether you would like to go and even though it didn't work for me you read and you realized it would work for you and you went and you had a great time I did my job and yeah. people would almost always write back and say yeah I, I see what you're saying yeah okay we can disagree and both of us are right yes and the answer is yes both of us yeah. are right yeah I'm right that I had this experience you're right you had this other experience yours was the good one mine not so much but the purpose of the review was fulfilled yeah so think back to those early days of of writing movie reviews where do you feel you evolved the most as a writer and as a film critic? Well, I think I evolved in two ways that every young critic needs to evolve. And unfortunately, uh, your mistakes and your non-evolved parts are in the paper and people can find them. The first is I learned that there's a difference between what I like, or could be a difference, between what I like and what is well done. Mm -hmm. I liked my mom's meatloaf growing up. <laughs> then I ate someone else's meatloaf and realized it wasn't very good. <laughs> and that's true of movies. We all have actors we would see in anything. And so when we see them in junk, we right. may be predisposed to think, I had a great time at fill in the blank. Right. That doesn't mean the movie is great. Okay. It means my enjoyment level was high, but it still could be a bad movie. So I tried to learn how to distinguish between what is well made and what I personally like. And okay. sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, I learned that you as a writer are trying to anticipate what people want to know. Not so much the pearls of genius you wish to bestow upon them, but they're gonna wanna know certain things. If they're going to see a film by a filmmaker, mm -hmm. they're gonna wanna know how does it relate to other work that person's done? How does it work as a genre film, if it's a genre film, they don't want to hear you pontificate and share your brilliance. If you can sneak a little brilliance in, assuming you have any, that's great. <laughs> but the point is, as a writer, you're anticipating the questions a reader would ask you if he or she were sitting in front of you. Mm -hmm. And that's your job, to answer those questions, not to spout off all of the things that show how much you've learned and how much experience you have and so forth. And those are the two things that made me a better writer as I went along, anticipating what the audience needed and realizing that a film that might work for somebody else, I'll give you an example, and this happened early on. I simply have no capacity to enjoy dirty dancing. However, You mean many, the movie or the actual act of dirty dancing? Uh, well, as I'm an incompetent <laughs> dancer, as my wife would tell you, certainly that. But um, I, I, well, you know, I'll, I'll leave Dirty Dancing out a little bit and go actually to Ghost. I'm on a Patrick Swayze kick. <laughs> I was sitting in Ghost, and this was an epiphany for me. I'm in the theater thinking, I wonder how much longer this is running. And gosh, I was supposed to pick up something on the way home <laughs> at the supermarket. What was it? And I look around, and people are crying, and they're holding onto their dates, and they got hankies out. And my first reaction was, 
How do you like that? I'm in a theater where 99% of the people don't get how dull this movie is. <laughs> my second reaction, thank goodness it was right after my first reaction, was, hey, Bozo, they're all having an experience that you're not. That means that 99% of the people who read your review are probably going to have their experience, not your experience. Wow. Why don't you try to understand what their experience is? Yeah. And I gave Ghost a favorable review, even though it didn't speak to me an iota. Right. And I realized people who read this are going to want, want it. They're going to know, especially if they then go and see it with all the people who are crying and holding hands. Larry didn't get this. I don't have to like something. I have to get it right. and share what it is that I got. And that is important. Um, Dirty Dancing did that a little bit for me, but Ghost in 1990 was the true epiphany where I thought, write the experience that people are going to have, not the experience that you personally are going to have. Interesting. And it is sometimes very divergent, and sometimes it's exactly the same. Right. You know, you go see a movie that everybody loves, and you love it too, and you have a wonderful time. So when you go to screenings that are critic-only screenings, uh, preview screenings that, that, that we have gone to, and you don't have that audience around you, how do you approach those kind of films from the experience standpoint when you're looking at the art versus the entertainment or the art and the entertainment aspect of it? It's much more difficult because you're operating in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And then you have to say, who do I think might be the audience for this film? Okay. What would they want to know? Um, if it's Power of the Dog, the audience is people who like Jane Campion as a director, or mm -hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch as an actor, or uh, Cody Smith-McPhee as an actor. It's also people who like Westerns and mm -hmm. want to see how a modern take on the Western has right. evolved. But part of the problem is, often if I'm seeing a movie for which I'm not the target audience, I may not understand. I remember once I went to a critic screening for a Spike Lee movie, uh, which I liked a lot, called Get on the Bus. But if someone came, up, someone came up to me afterwards and said, do you think this is an accurate depiction of the black experience at the Million Man March? Lord, I wouldn't begin to know. I mm -hmm. didn't go to the Million Man March. I'm mm -hmm. certainly not an African-American. So I have no idea what the authenticity of the movie mm -hmm. is. And if I were a black film goer, I might wonder that. I mm -hmm. can't answer that question. I could just give you my impression of how it affected me. Mm -hmm. And I don't presume to speak for the millions of people who are not, I'm not black, I'm not a woman, I'm not a little kid, I'm not geriatric yet, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, I wasn't raised anywhere except in the Northeast, so mm -hmm. I can't speak of what it's like to be authentically Californian. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have any of that, so I'm guessing all the right. time. If I were African American, if I were a woman, if I were a little kid or a parent of a little kid, what might I want to know about this movie? So I don't speak with authority, I try to understand what they want to understand. It's not always easy. And if there's no audience around you, it's much harder. Yeah, you, you, you talked about uh, the impact of film and how in, uh, films can speak to you and, and have effect on you. Uh, what was the first film you remember seeing that was truly an experience for you, both from uh, an appreciation of the entertainment and an appreciation of the art of filmmaking? Do you remember, or, or one of those films? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, uh, I was 12, or maybe 13, when You Only Live Twice came out. My parents had not allowed me to see James Bond films. They thought I was 
not mature enough for them, and they're probably right. <laughs> and that was back when you bought a ticket with an assigned seat. We lived near Philadelphia. Okay. Went to a big theater in Philadelphia. It was what they called a hard ticket movie. And you got a physical ticket in advance, like you were going to a Broadway show. And one, it opened this whole world to me of how do they do that? You know, how are these special effects happening? And I'm sure he's not really parachuting into an extinct volcano. How does that work? And it started getting me to think about the way a film is made. It also had exoticism to it because it's shot mm -hmm. in Japan and made in Japan. And most of all, it opened my eyes to a grown-up world to mm -hmm. which I had not been privy. Wow. And it was, you know, I'd seen Disney movies and Old Yeller and stuff <laughs> like that. Right. And, and they were fine. I enjoyed them. But this was the first grown-up movie I had seen. And it showed me, as a lot of people have learned throughout the years, you learn how to be an adult by watching adults. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us learn how to be an adult by watching film and perhaps television mm -hmm. and observing what people do. How do they behave? How do they talk? How do they interact? Yeah. And that, for me, was a glimpse of an adult world that was beyond my parents and certainly beyond my own experience. And I don't know that it affected me as a piece of art, but it made me think, I have got to see more of this stuff. Yeah. And not necessarily more James Bond, yeah. um, but uh, although of course I did, but more of the big world. Mm -hmm. I have to see the big world. Yeah. And that's what movies did for me. Wow. You are watching Meet Me at the Movies. Uh, Larry Topman joining us right here, longtime film critic for the Charlotte Observer and also a, a, a charter member of SEFCA, Southeastern Film Critics Way back Association as well. Uh, stick around after this quick intermission. We're going to come back and talk about practically perfect cinema. We're going to see what would be on Larry Topman's list uh, for practically perfect cinema. Hang around. Be a part of building the future. Be a welder. The welding technology program at Cleveland Community College prepares you with the science, the technology, and the skills to be a successful welder. Experienced instructors using state-of-the-art equipment train students using industry standard skills developed through classroom training and practical application. Successful graduates are in high demand and are employed as entry-level technicians in welding and metalworking industries. Learn more. Call Cleveland Community College at 704-669-4077. Arsenic, cadmium, fluorine, formaldehyde, rubidium, lithium. Do yourself a favor and don't image search for exploding e-cigarettes. What you don't know about e-cigarettes can hurt you. Are you ready to take all this in? Won't you come and meet me at the movies? Won't you come and watch it? Welcome back to Meet Me at the Movies. Noel T. Manning II here with Larry Topman, our guest talking cinema, longtime film critic for the Charlotte 
Observer. Uh, thanks for being here again. Oh, it's a joy. So I'd love to have you back for numerous shows, numerous episodes, because there's a lot that I want to talk to you about. And we talked over lunch about a lot of things too. And uh, one of those that uh, I initially talked to you about coming to visit us about was Practically Perfect Cinema, doing this little segment with other film critics, film fans, film lovers, uh, and filmmakers about films that they consider practically perfect. And uh, I know it's hard to whittle down that list. That's why I never ask, what is your favorite film? I don't do that because when people ask me that, I've got so many different films, depending on the genre, depending on my mood, uh, a lot of things, and that changes. But Practically Perfect Cinema can kind of leave it open. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of the films that made your list and that final film that you said, yep, this is the one I want to talk about. You know, it, it, it's funny, when people ask me my favorite film, I cheat and say like, well, I could give you, if you give me a genre, right. I'll give you, you know, if you say farce comedy, I'm gonna say Some Like It Hot. Uh, if you say mock documentary, I'm gonna say This Is Spinal Tap, which is an <laughs> almost perfect film. Um, martial arts action film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is for me the, the greatest of those. Um, yes, I love Citizen Kane, it's amazing, and I taught a class in it once, and uh, I won't give you the 30-second version, but it's astonishingly put together. Um, plenty of other films, Bicycle Thieves is the best Italian film I've ever seen. I could watch that, I've maybe seen it six times, I'm crying at the end every single wow. time. Wow. So there's a bunch of films that are practically perfect, but... The one that I chose today, I picked because I love animation. I have defended it. Whenever SEFCA, the Southeastern Film Critics Association, votes for their awards, I think I might be the only critic who puts animated films in the top 10. Wow. Most people kind of ghettoize them and go like, well, they're animated, let's put them with other animateds. I think an animated movie can tell you a story that's just as touching, yeah. just as funny, just as clever, just as musical, yeah. just as whatever you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and you and I have talked about how the first few minutes of Oh tells a little mini movie as well as any film yeah. I've ever seen in giving the arc of a life wordlessly with music and images. Yeah. And that's animated. Yeah. And at the end, you got the hanky out. Yes. So I, I just can't help but think animation is another genre. It's not something for kids. It's not something to be looked down on. Right. So the movie that I picked is Dumbo, which is my favorite film, and which actually is also the favorite film of the best of the modern animators, John Lasseter, who did Up and Inside Out and all the good Pixar stuff, Toy Story. Dumbo was also his favorite animated film. We had a long conversation about that once. And for me, it is a beautiful film for three reasons. And it's unique to Disney for certain reasons, and maybe that's why I like it best. Uh, I always preferred Warner Brothers animation to Disney anyway. I like Disney, but I'm not like in love with Disney. There's three things I think are great about it. One, the economy of the storytelling. It's not even 70 minutes long, but you get a complete arc in the life of little Dumbo and the people around him and the animals around him. You have sadness when they chain up his mom in a little yeah. cage that says Mad Elephant, and she sings Baby Mine to Dumbo, rocking him with her trunk because she can't touch him in any other way. Yeah. I had the Kleenex going. <laughs> it has humor. It has an incredibly bizarre musical number. My favorite musical number in any Disney film is Pink Elephants on Parade. You get the feeling that Walt came in and said to the guys, Okay, do whatever you want. Make it psychedelic or whatever word they used in 1940. And it has elephants that 
crawl in and out of each other's bodies and become musical instruments and become furniture and become part of the landscape and they change colors and fly. Yeah, I think it inspired the Beatles in a lot of their, I, their animation. I, well, <laughs> go ahead and laugh, but at one point Dumbo wears clown makeup. <laughs> it is the exact makeup of the Blue Meanie in Yellow Submarine. Yep. <laughs> exact. So there you go. Yes. I think I, someone saw Dumbo and went, that's the Blue Meanie. <laughs> Um, so it has all of these elements put together in a relatively simple and compact, yet rich and densely layered story. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing I like about it. The second thing I like about it is, unlike almost all Disney movies later, which had princes and princesses and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and so on, it has a real darkness. It's not a darkness like there's a wicked witch or a fairy queen who's malevolent or something. It has misery and sadness that is profound and loneliness. Uh, Dumbo is repeatedly called a freak and ostracized and made fun of. And he learns what it's like to really be an outcast, not that somebody gave him a poisoned apple and he went to sleep, you know, but that he has to fight back and find his identity when almost nobody respects or likes him. That's a very daring subject for an animated film, especially that far back. And if you were a little bit of an isolated kid or a kid who was bullied, that's very meaningful. And it was very brave of Disney to do mm -hmm. that uh, in the, again, in the early uh, 1940s. It's the second thing. The third thing is I'm very partial to musicals, and this has a whole bunch of good musical numbers. I can play the soundtrack and then just enjoy the fine songs which is, to me, not always the case with Disney. Um, I enjoyed Moana. Mm -hmm. I can't tell one song from another. Okay. Um, okay. I liked Coco enormously. I can tell one song, maybe two, from all the others. Yeah. This is a genuine, almost musical theater piece written by professional musical theater people applied to the screen that has a wonderful soundtrack. And that's the kind of thing that, to me, made old-fashioned animation stand out. So those three things really work for me. Yeah. Um, I never get tired of the idea that redemption comes from within. Mm -hmm. You're not blessed by a godmother. You're not given a prize for being a good person. You have to fight for what is yours, for self-respect, and for a sense of identity and self-worth. Think, think about that. That's an animated film from 80-some years ago, yeah. or 90-some years ago at this point. Yeah. Um, no, my math is terrible. <laughs> from 83 years ago. <laughs> and that's something that is meaningful and powerful. And it's not about a prince gave you a kiss. Right. They found a magic slipper. Yeah. It's all about a, a thing that you have to do for yourself. No one can help you. Yeah. There's no spells. The other thing is, it's interesting, human beings are all wicked, dismissive, or unimportant. They're cruel to Dumbo. They exploit him. The human clowns are sickos who um, want him to jump from like an 80-foot high building into a net, which they're going to let him fall into a tub anyway. And they're laughing because he's afraid. And the ringmaster is sadistic, likes using his whip. Won't go there. <laughs> <coughs> the characters that yeah. care are animals. Yeah. The characters that care a mouse is the main hero besides from Dumbo. Yeah. Who takes care of Dumbo and shows him how to behave in a, in a way that will make him stronger. And again, 
people in almost all of Walt Disney's animation are the heroes. Whether they're Snow White or dwarves or princes or fairy godmothers, these are only animals who take care of themselves. And the idea is animals have a life. Animals have validity. Mm -hmm. I'm an animal rights activist in a small way. That's meaningful to me. But at one point someone says, a clown says, elephants ain't got no feelings. When it's perfectly clear that they do. Right. So if you're an animal-centric person and frankly find a lot of humanity off-putting, this is the film for you. Wow. And again, very rare because Disney's ha characters that are heroes and lovable are all people, yeah. except in this movie. Interesting. And Bambi. Yeah, man, 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 Bambi. You, you, the first thing you talked about as it related to that was the script, was the story, and the last thing you talked about also was about really the script, the story, and, and how the characters play within that. Is that the first thing that brings you to appreciate film uh, as, a, as a narrative art form is the story, the screenplay? Um, uh, it's funny. The, uh, I interviewed Peter Bogdanovich once, and he went on and on about, it's motion pictures, motion pictures. And I said to myself, well, then you could make silent films. Mm -hmm. And he said, you could make silent films. Look at the artist, mm -hmm. a film he loved and I also right. liked very much. So it's not always the narrative that in words, right. Right. but the narrative is crucial. I can watch The Gold Rush by Chaplin, which is my favorite mm -hmm. Chaplin film, or a Keaton film like The General or Our Hospitality, and I don't need words, I'm following it, but it still has to have a narrative mm -hmm. arc. It can't just be beautiful images. This is why, for me, Terrence Malick doesn't work as a filmmaker. So much of his film is gorgeous imagery that the slender thread that connects any of it, or doesn't in mm -hmm. some cases, just flat out breaks. Mm -hmm. And I'm left looking at, look at that sunset. What a great looking tree. That's what art galleries are for mm -hmm. and books of photography. You have to give me a narrative, even if it's mainly a visual narrative. Mm -hmm. Without a narrative, I don't have any use for you. Yeah. And you don't have any use for me. Yeah. So uh, we've only got just a little bit of time sure. left, but uh, are there any uh, final thoughts you want to make sure you share today as we talk about, about film, about film criticism, about uh, art versus entertainment relating to, to that visual medium? Uh, a quick thought that art and entertainment aren't necessarily, necessarily divorced from each other, of course. Um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, one of my favorite films, not one of the greatest films, my favorite, <laughs> is pure entertainment. Um, but there are, The Godfather is art and it is also entertainment, mm -hmm. so they go together. Every film should be judged on its own merits, that's okay. important. Okay. You don't sit around going, well, this isn't Casablanca, and <laughs> oh, this isn't, you know, the Shawshank Redemption, if you love that film, and I know many do. That's meaningless. Of mm -hmm. course it isn't, probably isn't trying to be. You want to judge a film according to what it attempts to do and whether what it attempted to do, and we hope did, mm -hmm. was worth doing in the first place. I have a terrible aversion to torture horror. Mm -hmm. I don't ever see it as worth doing, so I'm incapable of watching mm -hmm. something like that. But for someone it is, for me it's not. But I always ask those two questions. Doesn't matter if it's art or entertainment. What did it try to do and did it achieve that end? Was it worth doing? And if so, why? Mm -hmm. Any movie, is a success or failure on that, no matter how high or low. Yeah. So if anybody wanted to go back and find your body of work, some of your work, what's the best place and the best ways they can do that? Uh, the Charlotte Observer Archive goes back many years. I don't know how many of the links are still there, but many are. 
Um, for the years that I was active, I was on Rotten Tomatoes, and it may be possible to find me through RottenTomatoes.com. Um, and I'm thinking that probably there's stuff on microfilm and microfiche if you want to go into the <laughs> library. If you and know what that is, any right? Any fan that <laughs> devoted, I will personally come and sign your cast. Because <laughs> you will have had to have had a broken bone to have so much time and so little to do. <laughs> Larry Topman, thanks for being here. This has been wonderful. Uh, I definitely want to have you back if, if you're up for spending more time with us. Glad to, or really. Or meet me at the movies. Uh, appreciate everybody who takes the time to spend with us here uh, as we engage in cinema, in the love of cinema. And uh, we always wrap things with a movie quote of the week. And this comes from Martin Scorsese. Or is it Scorsese? How do you say it? Uh, I would say Scorsese because that's Italian. There I grew up go. around Italians, but I believe he says Scorsese. All right. Movie quote of the week does come from Martin. And uh, cinema is a matter of what's in the frame and what's out of the frame. Mm. So until next time, I'm Noel T. Manning II, uh, appreciating all of you for taking the time to spend with us. And you can always email us, info at c19.tv, and, uh, and we'll send you uh, a cast that Larry can sign for you. No, not really. So until next time, I'm Noel T. Manning II. For all of us here, the cast and crew, thanking you. That's a wrap.